So we'll begin in Colossians chapter 4, the very last verse of Paul's letter to this little church. He says, I, Paul, write this greeting with my own hand. Remember my chains. Grace be with you. So this, this morning, I'm going to keep with what's kind of been a soft theme for us over the last few weeks, maybe even a prophetic theme for us over the last few weeks, encouragements and instructions for a little church in a little town. And so we, we come back to Paul's letter to the little church at Coloss. And our passage this morning, it's a very short passage. I know it's much shorter than normal, um, so don't be shocked by it. I'll be honest with you, um, I don't normally think it's particularly wise or prudent usually to preach from a single verse or a phrase in the Bible because the, the fewer words you have, the fewer guardrails you have to keep you from veering off into you know, wild speculations rather than the stewardship that is from God by faith. That's 1 Timothy 1. So what I'm going to try to do, though, is to cover this little verse at the end by surveying a large portion of what Paul has to say to us throughout the letter. And so, by God's grace, that will keep me on track. If I get off track, somebody holler at me. So, in chapter 1, Paul prays this big prayer for this little church. I remember this from last week. He prays unceasingly before our great big God that, that He would grace us uh, to walk in a manner that is worthy of the Lord. And so Paul points to the Lord in the ensuing verses as if to say, Behold the glory and the majesty of our God. So we've been shown thankfulness that is at the heart of the Christian life in this letter. Paul reminded this little church in chapter 3, that whatever they do, we read it this morning, whatever they do in word or deed, do everything in the name of the Lord Jesus, offering thanks to God the Father through Him. He says, be thankful. Big prayers and big thanks to a great big God. So I, I find that to be personally uplifting and encouraging. I don't know about you, but I think when, when Paul launches into that list uh, that we read this morning. It's just an encouraging and uplifting thing to hear the virtues of God and the power of God and the glory of God being spoken and being voiced. And we've got several that are out today. The, you, know, you, you can look around you and see that many in our body are sick or afflicted. Little church like ours, when we notice all the faces that are missing, it can remind us of all the trials that that in the struggles that, that we face or the, can make us feel insignificant or vulnerable like we talked about last week. And so I think it is good then that we be reminded that Jesus is preeminent. It is good that we be reminded that He is before all things and in Him all things hold together. That Jesus has reconciled all things to Himself and made peace between us and God by the blood of His cross. So when we get discouraged and when we get down, we lift up our heads and we behold our God who is great and glorious. When, when problems 
come up, and they do, when they seem insurmountable, and sometimes you're looking at it and you think, how am I going to get out of this? It feels like the enemy is closing in around you. The Bible says, fear not, stand firm, and see the salvation of the Lord. I was talking with my daughter yesterday, and she is facing a pretty significant challenge at school in, in Tennessee. She's got a project that is a big project for the class that is due, and it's a group project, so she has a person that she's working with, and this person has not been pulling her weight. And so Michaela has been, and this is just the nature of group projects. It's why I can't stand them, because you never rely on people, right? Um, but <laughs> if we're gospel people, you should be a reliable person. Um, but this person has not been pulling her weight, and so Michaela called last night to uh, talk about that, and she's just in tears. She said, I don't know how I'm going to get this done. I'm hitting a roadblock with this particular problem. The thing's due Tuesday. I don't know what to do. And as a dad, I'm looking at her, and uh, my heart's breaking because I, I, can't, I can't fix it for her. And she's talking about an engineering project, and there's really no help I can give her. She's surpassed me in my ability to help her academically. And, and so my, my best and wisest counsel for her was maybe the only way to get out of this is to go through it. You're, you're going to have to pull an all-nighter or two. You're going to have to work hard and put your nose to the grindstone. It's not going to be easy, and it's not going to be fun. It's going to be frustrating but the only way to get out of this is to go through it. And I say that because sometimes we face those kinds of things in our lives where, you know, the situations around us seem insurmountable. But the only way to get out of it is to go through it. And he that is in me is greater than he that is in the world. And in him I have been made more than a conqueror in all these things. There is great encouragement for us in this little letter to this little church in this little town at Coloss. And that's good. We need encouragement and assurance, especially for the instructions that Paul gives us in the letter, the things that follow. You know, in chapter 2, Paul tells us not to fall captive to philosophies and empty deceit because it is in Christ alone that the fullness of God dwells. And it is in Christ that we have been filled. It is in Christ who is the head of all rule and authority. And then in verse 13, it is in Christ that God has made us alive and, and He's canceled the record of our sins, nailing them to the cross. Isn't that a glorious truth? Isn't that an encouraging truth? The centrality and the preeminence of Jesus is everything. And this is important that we get this this morning. This is a, it is a huge instruction that Paul gives to the church to tell us to avoid philosophies and empty deceit in everything make Christ preeminent. There is no other name under heaven by which people can be saved. No one goes to the Father but through Him. That's straight Bible. I didn't make that up. That's straight Bible. And I, this kind of rests heavily on me this morning because I, I had a... I don't, it shouldn't be heavily, well, yeah, it rests heavily and it rests urgently on me this morning. I had a, an encounter the other day with someone and it, it really pressed this instruction and this, this admonition from Paul, pressed it home for me. 
this, this uh, person I was talking to, she was asking about the church, and she made the statement, you know, your church is right over by where we live. And I, I felt like she was, you know, the, by the way she was asking questions and the things she was asking, I, it just felt to me like she was looking for a place for her husband and her to go, a place for them to connect and to belong, a church home where she could be connected and, and feel the fellowship of belonging. And, and, and she asked me a series of questions after that that I, I really wasn't prepared for. You know, it, it kind of caught me off guard. You know, you, you have your perceptions about people, and we make assumptions, and we live in our little bubbles, and, and so out of those bubbles, we, we make assumptions, and, and the assumptions I had made based on my previous interactions with her were, were well, they were a little off. So her questions caught me off guard. Uh, she, she, she asked me, she said, is, is your church exclusively Christian? I mean, do, do y'all preach just out of the Bible? And I'm, I'm thinking when she asked that, I thought, well, what other kind of Christian church is there? I mean, if it's not exclusively Christian, it's not Christian at all. I, I, didn't, I mean, I was caught off guard by that. I didn't expect that kind of a, a question from her. See, she, she was looking for a place to go, a place to join herself to that embraced other religions and philosophies also, like Buddhism and Hinduism and Islam. In fact, she said that. She said, I, I, was, I was raised Christian, but I have found so much wisdom and help and encouragement through these other religions. She was looking for a place that embraced those philosophies and empty deceit. And I, I, you can ask my wife, I called her, or I didn't call, I texted her afterwards, and I said, I just had the worst time at breakfast this morning. I felt so defeated um, after our short conversation. Because, you know, she asked me a question, and the way that she asked it, it, it clued me into the fact that when I answer honestly without trying to hem-haw and massage the truth and work my way around the truth... When I answer honestly, it's going to confirm for her certain prejudices that she has towards Christians, certain wrong conceptions that she has about Christians and their judgmental nature and that, that kinds of thing. And certainly there are people who call themselves Christians who are very judgmental, right? There are. And they give us a bad name. They give the name of Christ a bad name. But so she was asking this question, and, and so, I mean, I, the conversation ended kind of quickly because I... I could tell that's not what she wanted to hear. I didn't want to massage the truth and him haw around. I just simply said, yes, we are exclusively a Christian church because the Bible teaches that Jesus is the only way. Amen. And so she was like, okay, well, thank you, and ended the conversation quickly after that and, and, and left. You know, And I was hoping I would see her the next day to be able to engage her in a a deeper conversation. What I should have said to her when she asked that was, why don't you have a seat and let's, let's talk this through? Because there's no way I could give her a, a quick answer and it'd be sufficient. And I just felt defeated because at the end of the day, it's not my work, it's the Lord's work, it's the Holy Spirit's work, but I still want to be an effective witness, right? And so I, I felt like maybe I, I wasn't um, just because of the brevity of our of our dialogue. She's very nice to me, and the number of times I've, I've talked with them, her and her husband, they've been very pleasant 
They're, they're just they're delightful people. And, and if by some work of God's providence she listens to this message someday, I, I want her and her husband to know that I want good things for them. You know, I want them to know that I, I want joy for them and peace for them. I want them to know the fellowship of belonging that we have as our experience here in this church. I want these things for them, but I, I know, I know without a doubt in my mind that those things are elusive and fleeting outside of Jesus Christ. He makes them real. He alone makes them real. She'll never get that joy. She'll never get that peace. She'll never get that kind of belonging anywhere else outside of Christ. And so Paul brings this teaching to us and he says, don't be caught up and don't fall prey to competing philosophies and and empty deceits. Because there was no shortage of competing philosophies and empty deceits in Coloss, just like there's no shortage of them today in, in our society. Jesus is the way. If it's not Jesus, it's not the way. And then in, in verse uh, 16 of chapter 2, Paul, he, he challenges the church not to allow the world to judge him. So you guys don't, don't fall prey to those competing philosophies. Jesus is the only way. And at the same time, don't, don't let them judge you for following Christ. Don't let them get all legalistic on you and, 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 and hold you to the dictates of their culture. Follow Scripture, not culture. We, we don't have a surface-level religion. And that's all that the, other, that the world has to offer. The competing philosophies and the empty deceits, that's all they have to offer is a surface-level religion. Our religion, our faith begins in the heart and is evidenced outward. It evidences itself out of what happens in the heart. It does not consist of rule-keeping or ritual observances because we have died in Christ. So why, Paul says, he asked the question, if you have died in Christ, why would you go on living as if you were submitted to the religious regulations of men according to human precepts and teachings? That's verse 22. Paul says that these things, they, they have an appearance of wisdom. They look wise, but they don't have any value in stopping the indulgence of the flesh. That's verse 23. There, there are no defense. There's no bulwark against sin. Did you know that coming on Sunday is not a defense against sin? It's a work. If your heart ain't right, it doesn't matter how many times you go to church. Did you know that baptism, being dunked in the water, is not a defense against sin? How many people have I seen dunked in the water, baptized in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit to come up unchanged? It's a work. It's a work of obedience, sure, but you can get dunked a thousand times. And if your heart ain't right, you ain't saved. Paul says these things have an appearance of wisdom. These things that, these, not, those were probably poor examples coming to church and baptism because those are things that we are commanded to do. But there are other things outside that the world's going to hold you to, standards that the world will hold you to that are not uh, wisdom. They may have the appearance of wisdom, but they're not wisdom. I talked about that sandbox that we create for our kids last week. 
you know, and the, you know, the, the worldly wisdom says, well, you let your child explore who they want to be and you let them explore alternate ideologies and that kind of stuff. And I'm saying, no, you need to create a sandbox that is safe and you need to tell them lovingly that this is true and this is a lie and get that bomb out of the sandbox. You don't want to create a space for your kid to play in that is not safe for them. Paul says there are things in the world that have an appearance of wisdom, but they have no value in stopping the indulgence of sin. You can set up all the barriers around yourself that you can possibly imagine. You can isolate yourself from the world. You can move and live in a cave by yourself in the wilderness, but that does not change the condition of your heart. It will not change your indulgent desires. The only one that can do that is Jesus. He is the one who redeems the soul and makes it clean. Then in chapter 3, Paul tells us to put on Christ-likeness. Boy, that's a, that's a tall order. I mean, he was perfect. But Paul says to put away sin, to put to death what is earthly within you. That's verse 5. Put on Christ. You have died with Christ. You've been raised with Christ. Your life is hidden with Christ in God. So then be Christ-like. And he describes that like putting on compassion at hearts and kindness and humility and meekness and patience. Live in harmony with the body. Let the peace of Christ uh, rule in your hearts. Let the words of Christ dwell in you richly. Teach each other. Hold each other accountable. Do we do that very well in the church today? Are we really good at holding each other accountable? We see our brother falling. Do we say something to him? Do we see our sister falling? Do we say something to her? Or are we worried about offending? Teach each other. Hold each other accountable. Paul says, sing and be thankful. We covered that portion of chapter 3 a few weeks ago. There is, there is a distinctiveness about the Christian life, that it, an authentic Christian that is unmistakable. And Paul describes it there. And it's that distinctiveness that I see coming to bear in our text this morning. We'll get to it in just a minute. And then at the end of chapter 3, boy, we get into some muddy waters here. It shouldn't be, but it's become controversial territory in these latter days. Let's read it. Chapter 3, verse 18, and then we'll take a quick look at it. He says, Wives, submit yourselves to your husbands as is fitting in the Lord. Husbands, love your wives and do not be harsh with them. Children, obey your parents in everything, for this pleases the Lord. Fathers, do not provoke your children, lest they become discouraged. Bondservants, obey in everything those who are your earthly masters, not by way of eye service as people pleasers, but with sincerity of heart, fearing the Lord. Whatever you do, work heartily as for the Lord and not for men, knowing that from the Lord you will receive the inheritance as your reward. You are serving the Lord Christ. For the wrongdoer will be paid back for the wrong he has done, and there is no partiality. So I'm not going to work through that and break that down into nuance and specific situations this morning. I, I, not because I'm afraid to, but because, I, number one, it's not the point of my message. And number two, I don't have time. And number three, I don't think Paul is being nuanced and specific here. I think he's giving us some broad guidelines to live by. And the problem is that a lot of people take this passage that we just read and they use it to hurl criticisms 
at the Bible. And they'll say things like, see, the Bible supports slavery. See, the Bible's against women. That's not what Paul is getting at here at all. In fact, if if you read this passage and you come away from it with the idea that Paul is praising or celebrating the institution of slavery, then, then it's very clear that you are reading it through some very distorted lenses. This isn't about slavery at all. It's not even about marriage or parenting. Those are situations where Paul's main point applies. They are uh, practical applications of the main point that Paul is trying to make. And and what is the main point? Well, we, we find it in two places. Back up one to verse 17. He says, And whatever you do, in word or deed, do everything in the name of the Lord Jesus, giving thanks to God the Father through Him. And then he restates that point in verse 23. Whatever you do, work heartily as for the Lord and not for men, knowing that from the Lord you will receive the inheritance as your reward. You are serving Christ the Lord. That's the point. That's his point. You are serving the Lord. Whatever you do, do it as if you're serving the Lord. And then he gives examples of of situations that you might find yourself in. If you find yourself in the bondage of slavery, be such a slave that your master looks at you and wonders, what is it about this guy? Let your life, your service in servitude, bear witness to the risen Christ. If you're a husband or a wife, be such a husband, be such a wife that your spouse looks at you and marvels at your gospel witness. Does your, does your spouse see Christ-likeness in you? So it's, it's not the husband or the wife or the slave master or the parent that you're serving, Paul says. You are serving the Lord. If they do wrong, the Lord will pay them back for that. It's on Him, it's not on you. You receive the inheritance of the Lord. So live as unto the Lord. Or if we go way back to chapter 1, look at the prayer in the beginning of chapter 1, Paul says, I pray that you would walk worthy in a manner that is worthy of the Lord. Walk in a manner that is worthy of the Lord. That's a whole lot to take in to get down to where we've got to go this morning. I want to cut a lot of ground to get that point. Um, It all brings me, I think, to what I think is an absolutely remarkable statement at the very end of Paul's letter. And it's our, our passage this morning. I, Paul, write this greeting with my own hand. Remember my chains. Grace be with you. Chapter 4, verse 18. For the most part, when you read that, you will recognize it as a very typical, characteristic way that Paul ends his letters. You can go through, there's like, what, 13 epistles that Paul wrote. It's widely accepted that Paul used a a professional scribe or someone to write his letters for him. He dictated them, and then they actually, someone else actually wrote them down. So in order for Paul to authenticate to his audience that the letter that that they received is genuinely from Paul, he would personally write the the last few lines or personally write a, 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 a conclusion, an ending, and he said, I'm, I'm writing this with my own hand, or I'm writing this to you, or something like that. It's very, very, you see it in every one of his epistles, just about. It's the way that, for Paul to authenticate to his readers that 
this letter actually belongs to him or came from him because the rest of the handwriting is somebody else's. It, it works the same way as when you're, if you type up a letter to a friend and then you sign it, that says that, hey, I, I wrote this, I typed this, or at the very least it says I agree with everything in this, you know? So you, that, that's, it works, it's his signature line. It verifies that, that uh, we authored the letter and this verifies that Paul authored the letter. That part's very common. I, Paul, write this letter to you. What is also very common is where he says, grace be to you. It's, it's, the, it's in every single one of Paul's letters that we have. He, he obviously wrote more letters than what we have uh, record of, but um, in all the ones that we have, he says this, grace be to you, or some variation of it, the grace of the Lord Jesus be with you, or God's grace be with you. It's in all of the letters. So what's unique about this letter to the Colossian church is what he says in between. He says, remember my chains. He doesn't make that appeal in the closing of any other letter that we know of. Not, not any other letter that we have in our Bible anyway. And it's not that Paul wasn't in chains when he wrote other letters. Ephesians, Philippians, Philemon, those were all written from prison. He was in chains when he wrote those letters. The same situation as with Colossians. In fact, Colossians and Ephesians, we think, were probably written about the same time. So in none of those other letters, those prison letters of Paul, does he close with similar language. Paul is written to instruct us and encourage a church against prevailing heresies of the day. And in this church, this letter to this little church, he says, remember my chains. He wants to encourage us and instruct us. He's written this whole big letter to tell us that Christ is Lord and that he reigns and to call us to a life that is worthy of the King of Kings. He says, hey, guys, look, behold our God. And that's, that's a bulk of chapter 1 is just looking at who God is. But here at the end, he says, remember my chains. I believe that Paul is using this not as a way to say, guys, it's hard for me. Life is tough. I wish you'd pray for me. He does ask for prayer, but that's not what he's getting at here. I think he's, he says this, remember my chains, as a means of assurance to them. He said in, back in chapter 1, behold our God. And it's just a list of glorious things, one after another, after another, after another, about who God is and His power and His authority. Then He gives these instructions and corrections, and every time He instructs us, He appeals to Christ. He says, look at Christ, behold Christ, on the basis of Christ, because of God in Christ, because of what Christ has done, He appeals to Christ. And at the very end, when He gets to the end of His letter, He says, I believe Paul is, he says, remember my chains. I believe he's, he's lifting up his own suffering to authenticate the sincerity of what he's saying. You know how we talked about where he says, I, Paul, write this with my own hand, and that's a way for him to authenticate that the letter actually came from him. So it's like his signature line, right? So he says, remember my chains. That's his way of saying, what I just wrote, I mean. I mean it. And you know I mean it because you can consider the suffering that I'm going through and still telling you about it. It's not just here at the end. Paul introduces the church 
to his suffering back in chapter 1. So it's kind of a theme that runs all the way through. He gives that great prayer, and he, he gives that great picture of God. And then in chapter 1, verse 24, he says, Now I rejoice in my sufferings for your sake. And in my flesh I am filling up what is lacking in Christ's afflictions for the sake of his body, that is the church, of which I became a minister according to the stewardship from God which was given to me for you to make the word of God fully known, the mystery hidden for ages and generations but now revealed to his saints. There are three remarkable things that Paul says right there in verse 24, the very first thing. Number one, he rejoices in his sufferings. Who does that? That's uniquely Christian. <laughs> Number two, his suffering for their sakes. Not, not for his own sake, not for his own behalf, but for their sakes. And number three, this is probably the most remarkable, is that he is filling up what is lacking in Christ's afflictions. Now, if, if you're reading that as I am, the natural question you should be asking is, how could anything be lacking in Christ's affliction? I mean, Jesus was brutally tortured and murdered, nailed to a cross, left hanging there for hours while he suffered and died a very slow and painful death. It would have been a horror to, to watch, much less to go through. So what could possibly be lacking in his affliction? Jesus suffered to the point of death. I think the key here is where Paul says, in my flesh I am filling up what is lacking. There is an, a, an immediate presence about it. Paul is suffering now. He can interact with the church directly. They can hear from him from prison, from his chains directly. So it's a, a real and present suffering of someone that they know, not just a story that was told to them about some prophet from some faraway land. This is Paul. This is the guy that Epaphras was sent by to come to us and give us the gospel. This is the one that, that sent the gospel to us. It's like, you know, when you, you hear a, a story of, of someone who went through or is going through terrible times, and you hear about their plight, and you think, man, that's awful. And I, you know, I feel really bad for them. But that's, you know, sad and unfortunate, but that's about the extent of it. Right? You know, we, we try to empathize the best we can. But we hear this story about someone that we don't know going through some kind of struggle. And we may feel some kind of sorrow for them, but that's, that's the, about the extent of it. But then when that thing happens to you or to someone that you love, right? Someone close to home. It hits you in a much more significant way. You're a lot more invested in it. You're impacted a lot more closely by it. And it's not to say that the other person's suffering, the one that you didn't really know, not to say that their suffering was any less, it was just less immediate. You know, it didn't have the immediate context. And that's what, I think that's what Paul is saying here. I am suffering now for you in the name of Christ. Picking up in verse 28, he says, Him we proclaim warning everyone and teaching everyone with all wisdom that we may present everyone mature in Christ. For this I toil, struggling with all this energy that he powerfully works within me. 
This is the reason for his toil, his work, his labor, his endurance with joy, that everyone might mature in Christ. Look at what he says, verse 29. He says, For this I toil, all this energy that God powerfully works within me. This is the reason I'm working with, with the power of God working in me. Okay? Paul, is, he's just said that he rejoices in his suffering, that in his flesh he's filling up what is lacking in Christ's affliction, and all of that is for, for their sakes. And then he says, I labor for this with all of his energy that he works within me. So now think back to last week. Do you remember the prayer from last week? It's just a few verses up in verse 11. Paul tells the church that he's praying for them so that they would be strengthened with all power according to his glorious might for all endurance and patience with joy. Well, that sounds familiar. And then now Paul says, I, look, I'm, I'm suffering. I'm, I'm laboring. Look, I'm, I'm doing the thing that I'm praying that you will be strengthened to do. I'm living it. God's power is made evident. His ability to sustain me is made evident in my suffering. So you should trust it. God is working in Paul. Won't he work in you also? To strengthen you with all power according to his glorious might and to endure with all patience and joy. So Paul says, remember my chains and be strengthened knowing that God is able to carry you. And then in verse or chapter 2, he starts off saying, I, I want you to know how great a struggle I have for you and for those at Laodicea and for all of those who have not seen me face to face. Paul says, I struggle, I toil with all of this energy, all of God's energy. You know, I'm, I'm empowered by Him because I want you to know my great struggle is for you. So that, verse 2, their hearts may be encouraged, being knit together in love, to reach all the riches of full assurance of understanding and the knowledge of God's mystery, which is Christ, in whom we are, are, are hidden all the treasures of wisdom and knowledge. So I believe logically it works like this. Paul says, first, look at God. Chapter 1, isn't he awesome? Then he says, to confirm all of that, look to my suffering in, in prison. So if, if my picture of God for you, if you need help believing that, just look to my suffering in prison to show you that I mean what I'm saying. I couldn't do this on my own. I toil and struggle in the strength of Christ. So you be strengthened in Christ. And then he says, look to my suffering on your behalf and be encouraged and assured. That's, that's what's so important about this. He says, I'm, I struggle for this point so that their hearts may be encouraged, being knit together in love, to reach all the riches of full assurance of understanding. So the more you understand about this mystery in God and, and what we have in Christ and who Christ is for you, the more sure you can be. Though things fall around you, though things get difficult for you, though, though you have to suffer, you have assurance in Christ. Look to the, my suffering on your behalf. Don't, don't lose heart. Be encouraged. Don't hold your head down, but reach for the full assurance that we have in Christ because He is all and in all. And I am I'm reminded when Paul says, remember my chains. It makes me think of the, the Christian martyrs who were hung and, and tortured and killed over the centuries. You know, uh, countless of them were burned alive. Like you, they used to burn witches at a stake. They were burned alive. 
So many of them, they, uh, they went to their deaths singing and praising God. It's miraculous, truly miraculous. They went to their deaths, you know, tied them up at a stake. They're bringing fire and lighting the wood underneath them. And they're singing praise to God, giving thanks and glory to God that they were counted worthy to suffer for the name of Jesus. There are, are stories of people who were present at the public execution of Christians who saw what happened at that stake and left saved. They saw the Christian witness in suffering for the name of Christ and they left changed, redeemed because of the witness they saw before them in Christian suffering. Consider that Paul, the guy who wrote this letter to the church at Colossus, and the guy who said, remember my chains, the Lord did not spare Paul from the same suffering that, and persecution that he himself inflicted on Christians before he met Jesus. And yet, the Lord's grace was sufficient. It just it struck me this week as I was reading and studying, and I came to this final message from Paul, remember my chains. It just struck me that you know, we can get so caught up in our little worlds. Something minor happens, we get bent out of shape. Let someone cut you off on the highway and see how quickly we lose our, our Christian disposition. And then when something actually major happens, it, it, can, it can just destroy us. We can get lost in despair. We can lose hope. Begin despair of God. Why is the Lord against me? And Paul says, hey, remember my chains and be strengthened in Christ who strengthens you. Be encouraged and assured in Christ who holds you. I think Casey wrote about it this morning. You know, the God does miraculous things in our lives. And... Um, I think back to the mountaintop experience that uh, Peter, James, and John had on the mountain with Jesus. And they went up to the Mount of Transfiguration. They saw Christ in all of his glory. They saw him standing there talking to Elijah and Moses. And they said, Lord, let's just stay here and build this temple and, and, and worship you here. Let's just, we don't want ever want to come down from the mountain. I was at a women's retreat a few weeks ago and a, a lady I mean, and it's a, it's a Christian retreat and, you know, there are things that, that happen and experiences you have on the weekend where you just, you just, it's like a mountaintop experience. You just get excited and reju rejuvenated and renewed in the Lord and all your hoping and you're just feeling new and alive and on fire. And she came to me uh, during a time of prayer and she said, I, I, want, I want you to pray for me that, that I, I, wouldn't, I wouldn't ever lose this. I don't, I don't want to leave this. I, I want to take this with me. And, and, that's great. That's a wonderful desire to have. The, the Peter, James, and John weren't condemned for their desire to, to stay and worship the Lord. But at the end of the day, you have to come off the mountain. you got to come down from the mountain because we, we're not there yet. It's the already and not yet kingdom of God. One day we will be able to stand around Him and worship Him forever and not have to worry about it. We'll feel that high like we all. But at some point, you're going to have to come down. 
So I couldn't pray for her that, that the Lord would let her feel this all the time. That's just not, that's not, that's not the way the Lord works. That's not the way life works. I did pray that he would strengthen and encourage her, though. That when, when the, the fire seems to dwindle down, that he would find new ways to kindle it. Paul says, hey, you need kindling? Remember my chains. I'm suffering and I'm praising the Lord. Because I mean what I say. He is worth it. Amen. Let's pray. Father God, I come to you in the name of Jesus and I thank you for your holy word. I thank you for this, uh, this reminder from Paul. I thank you for the, the guidepost that he can give us to point to us and, and say, hey guys, if you need another example, just look at me. Lord, help us to be examples like that for the rest of the world so that they see us and they see Christ. Let it be all to your glory. In Jesus' name we pray, amen. And amen.